Let's read Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 25, just as an opening text. The Bible says, While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before Yahweh, my mighty one, concerning the holy mountain of my mighty one. While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I have come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by the Mighty One. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away injustice, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. Last week we began getting into the prophetic portion of Daniel 9 regarding the 70 weeks that Gabriel told Daniel about. 70 weeks of years, remember. That's 490 years that had been decreed from heaven by Yahweh sent to Daniel with the messenger, the angel, Gabriel. And those 70 weeks, or 490 years, were concerning Daniel's people, the people of Israel, and Daniel's holy city, the city of Jerusalem. The last thing we looked at in verse 24, where there is listed six accomplishments that will take place within the time frame of these 490 years. And these things are one, at least listed by the Holman Christian Standard Bible, translated like this. One, to bring the rebellion to an end. Two, to put a stop to sin. Three, to wipe away injustice. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And six, to anoint the most holy. Now today we're going to begin to look at just the first one in that list in Daniel 9 verse 24. That is to bring the rebellion to an end or as the King James Version translates it, I believe better, more literal, to finish the transgression. What does this mean and how is it accomplished in the allotted time frame of the 490 year prophecy? Now to understand this I want to begin by pointing out something important in Daniel 9 verse 25. Look at this again. Verse 25 says, No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. Verse 25 contains the beginning point for the 70 weeks. This is a 490 year time frame or time period that begins from the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to pinpoint that for you guys in a later sermon. But for now, just know that this has to do with a time frame during the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. When Jerusalem began to be rebuilt in difficult times with opposition, remember that the walls went up around the city, but it began to be rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. That's right around the beginning of the 490-year prophecy. So these 70 weeks or 490 years begins when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is issued. We'll get more into that at a later time. 
We learn in verse 25 that from the issuing of this decree until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now we know that in this context, one week equals seven years, and that helps us here in this vision. Because if one week equals seven years, that means seven weeks, follow along with me, it's sometimes difficult to put this in your brain with all these numbers, but it's actually simple once you grasp it. Seven weeks equals 49 years. 62 weeks equals 434 years. How you do that is just seven times seven and 62 times seven. Remember, one week equals seven years. So, that's a total of 69 weeks, 7 plus 62 is 69 weeks, or 483 years with one week left. That's the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. So Gabriel is telling Daniel that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be 483 years. Now I want you to think about that. Daniel was shown an exact time frame for the first coming of our Messiah, the Messiah to the nation of Israel. Daniel was shown that. Sometimes we get prophecies in the Bible and there's no time element involved. There's no time frame involved. In this case, there is an exact down to the very year, 483 years. It's beautiful. Now this is interesting because this means that anyone who studied and understood, if you understood the vision of Daniel back then, Anybody that did that should have known when the Messiah would be on the scene, so to speak. Just as Daniel was able to read the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, remember Daniel 9, 1 through 3? Israelites after Daniel could have read the scroll of the prophet Daniel and understood the time of the coming of the Messiah, the prince. Or they may have just had it passed down to them by word of mouth. Yet, in spite of this, the nation of Judah, for the most part, did not recognize that Yeshua was the promised Messiah. As you keep hear, hearing me repeat, and I'll repeat over and over again because it's pertinent to this whole study. John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's specifically the nation of Judah. Why did they not recognize the time of their visitation? Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they didn't really pay attention to the vision that Daniel had been given by Yahweh through Gabriel. But this does shine a whole new light on Yeshua's words during his ministry in Luke 19, 41 through 43, where we read, As he, that's Yeshua, approached and saw the city, the city is Jerusalem, he wept over it. This is the same city that Gabriel says the 70-week prophecy is about. Remember, 70 weeks are decreed, for your people, Daniel, and your holy city. That's the city of Jerusalem. Yeshua looks out over Jerusalem and he weeps over that same city. Verse 42, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? That's Yeshua talking. And accepting Yeshua as the promised Messiah would have brought peace to the city as a whole. But they did not do that. He goes on to say, But now it is hidden from your eyes. They were not able to see this at that time. Verse 43, for the days will come on you. The you here is the people that are alive at the time Yeshua is making this prophetic prediction here in Luke 19. It says, when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. 
And I believe that we've seen through the course of our study that these enemies that Yeshua is talking about is a reference to the Roman armies that we've been discussing. The Roman armies that are called the abomination that causes desolation. Verse 44, he says, they will crush you and your children. That's the adult Israelites and their children, the ones that did not accept Yeshua as the promised Messiah. And then he says, after he says, they will crush you and your children, it says, within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you. That's the same thing as Matthew 24, 1 through 3, where Yeshua tells his disciples, do you see these stones talking about the temple that was standing at that time, not some future hypothetical rebuilt temple, but the temple that was standing at that time? He said, do you see these stones? Not one stone shall be left here upon another that will not be torn down. That's Luke 19:44. They will not leave one stone upon another. And then look at the end of verse 44. Why will this happen? Yeshua says why this will happen in verse 44 at the end. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In verse 44, Yeshua says that all of this calamity will happen because the generation then, the generation of Yeshua's time, did not recognize the time of their visitation. Now here's the point. Yahweh revealed the time to Daniel when He sent Gabriel to Daniel, the vision in Daniel 9. Gabriel point-blank told Daniel, from the time that the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be 483 years. He told him the exact time frame. He told him, Daniel, he told Daniel specifically, and then people could have read Daniel or passed down by word of mouth, this is when the time of the visitation of the Messiah is going to come. Now this ties in with the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 21. I've talked about it a lot. It's so important. Where the landowner has been sending his servants one after another to the tenant farmers, but they keep rejecting the servants that the landowner is sending to what? To receive the gleaned harvest of the grape vineyard. Remember, the landowner represents, in the parable, the landowner represents Yahweh, and the servants are the prophets. And the tenant farmers are the leaders, really, in the nation of Israel. The fruit that they're supposed to harvest is the people. Uh, the fruits of righteousness from the people in the nation of Israel. So the tenant farmers are the leaders that are supposed to be teaching the truth. They're not teaching the truth. They reject all of the servants, beat them, kill them, and all that. And then last of all, the landowner says, after he sends all of his servants, he says, I'll send my son, my well-beloved son. And he sends his son to the tenant farmers. But what do the tenant farmers do to the landowner's son? They beat him, kill him, and throw him out of the vineyard. That's the parable of the vineyard. So the landowner's son came to visit them to gather the fruit of the harvest, but the tenant farmers did not recognize the time of their visitation. They didn't realize, we need to accept this guy. We need to receive him. No, they killed him and threw it out of the vineyard. They said, this is the heir. Let's kill him and take his inheritance. They should have received him, and then the inheritance would have been theirs. They would have been joint heirs with Christ, with the Messiah, but they didn't do that. They did not understand or properly interpret the vision that was given to Daniel. They did not recognize the time of their visitation, Luke 19.44. That is why the judgment was, was to come upon them. It's, this is so important. This is such a huge thread in the New Testament that I think the majority of Christianity misses because they, 
they read things with futuristic dispensational eyes in prophecy, and they don't read things in context and realize what happened at the first coming of Yeshua, at the first coming of the Messiah. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it all ties in with the first thing that Gabriel tells Daniel will be accomplished in this 490-year period. He says in Daniel 9.24 that 70 weeks are decreed to, the HCSB says, bring the rebellion to an end, or, as I believe the King James Version, the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the New International Version translates this more literally and better to finish the transgression. So I think the KJV, ASB, NASB, and NIV get this one right. I think the HCSB, not necessarily an erroneous translation, but it's not as good of a translation as these other more literal renderings. Now, in Daniel's prayer, prior to this vision, Daniel had been confessing his sins and the sins of his people Israel. Daniel 9, verse 20. In Daniel 9, 11, he says this. This is part of his prayer. Quote, All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Thus, the promised curse written in the law of Moses has been poured out on us because we sinned against you, Yahweh. End of quote. That's part, a big part of Daniel's prayer. Daniel mentions how that the prophets had been sent to the sinful people, the sinful nation of Israel, but the Israelites would not listen to the prophets. Daniel even calls the prophets servants, just like Yeshua does in the parable of the vineyard. Look at this in Daniel 9, 5 through 6. This is part of Daniel's prayer. He says this in verses 5 through 6, We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. What did Yeshua call the prophets in the parable of the vineyard? Yahweh's servants or slaves. Same thing. We've not listened, Daniel says. Who's the we? Who's the we? Daniel and his people, the Israelites. They've not listened to Yahweh's servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Daniel says, we've sinned by turning away from your commandments, and that is the reason why they were in captivity, because of their transgressions. Each time Yahweh would send the Israelites a prophet, and they would reject and often murder that prophet. Imagine that. That's a, that's a grave sin. I mean, all sin is transgression of the law. But imagine Yahweh sending a prophet and because you don't like what the prophet says, you beat him and you murder him. This is what happened. The Israelites would do this. I remember there was one time in the history of Israel, I preached on this before, that Elijah, Eliyahu, was the only prophet left in Israel. Most of the Israelites had killed all of the other prophets, and there was only 7,000 men of Israel that Yahweh had reserved that had not been in on killing the prophets. Elijah was scared for his life. So they're going to take my life too. All the other ones had been murdered. Each time Yahweh would send Israel a prophet and they would reject and murder that prophet, it was metaphorically, this is important, it was metaphorically filling up a measure in a cup of sin. I want you to think of a cup and then think that each drop of the blood of a prophet filled up that cup a little bit more. That cup 
was a testimony against the sins of the nation of Israel. As Yeshua said, the landowner sent his servants to the tenant farmers, but the farmers would beat and kill the servants. Each beating and murder was more blood, the blood of the prophets that was being dropped or poured into this sin cup. Now, in case you think I'm making up that metaphor, I'm not. It harkens back to what we covered in Matthew 23, 29-32 several months ago about how the shedding of the prophet's blood was pouring into a measure. The scribes and the Pharisees of Yeshua's day would fill up the measure of their forefathers' sins. Let's read this again. Matthew 23, 29-32. Yeshua says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. You therefore testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's transgressions of the law. The Pharisees claimed that if they had lived back in the days of Israel of old, they would not have shed the blood of the prophets that were sent to them. They claimed they would not have turned their ear from hearing the prophets like Daniel spoke of in Daniel 9 verse 6. But of course the Pharisees were lying. They were just as rebellious as their Israelite forefathers who killed the prophets back in the days of, of Israel of old or of Israel gone by. And Yeshua gives them a very harsh rebuke. And this is why Yeshua tells the first century, the first century Pharisees in verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's sins. Notice the metaphor that Yeshua uses of filling up a measure he tells them that as their rebellious fathers poured into this cup with the blood of the prophets in times past, they, the first century leaders of the nation, will fill up the measure. We might say in the words of Gabriel, Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are decreed to finish the transgression. To finish the transgression in Daniel 9.24 equals filling up the measure of their father's sins in Matthew 23, 32. It's the same thing in two different ways. To finish the transgression is equal to fill up the measure of your father's sins. Notice, fill up, finish. How would the Israelites in that first century generation fill up the measure in that cup? Remember that cup that had been being poured into with the blood and the drops of the blood of the righteous prophets of Yahweh. How would those Israelites fill up the measure? Well, the answer to that is found in realizing what was being poured into this metaphorical cup. It was the blood of the prophets of Yahweh that was being poured into this cup. So the generation of Israelites that were alive during Yeshua's day, His own that He came to, but they did not receive Him, they would fill up the measure by pouring into that cup the blood of the prophet of all prophets, Yeshua of Nazareth. Yeshua's blood, and remember, He was a prophet. We'll talk about that momentarily. His blood being shed would fill up the measure of the Father's sins. After the landowner sent servant after servant to collect the grape harvest, the landowner finally sent his son to the tenant farmers. The landowner actually said this in the parable, Surely they will respect and reverence my son that I'm about to send to them. But the tenant farmers killed the son, and they threw him out of the vineyard. The son is the prophet Yeshua. 
Shedding this prophet's blood is what filled up the measure in the sin cup. Now, I've studied and studied and studied the parable of the vineyard, and it is such an important parable that explains what happened in the first century generation of the Israelites. And this is why Yeshua says in Matthew 23, verse 36, after his scathing rebukes of the scribes and Pharisees, he says this, I assure you, all these things will come upon this generation. However, I have not noticed until recently the parable that comes right after the parable of the vineyard. Now, I need to take my own Bible study method teachings to heart here because I always tell people, make sure you read before and after. Okay, So I had read before the parable of the vineyard. I studied all of Matthew 21, but I didn't remember to keep reading through Matthew 22 because there's another parable at, right after the parable of the vineyard that he's still speaking to the chief priests and Pharisee elders. And it's the parable of the wedding banquet. Just as important. Now it fits nicely in this lesson, so let's read from Matthew 21.45 through Matthew 22.7. verse 7. I'm not going to cover the whole parable of the wedding banquet, but I'm going to cover the first seven verses in Matthew 22 because it's pertinent to what we're talking about here in this lesson. Matthew 21, verse 45 through 46, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Now that is right after the parable of the vineyard. They knew, and he was. He was speaking about them in that parable. They were the tenant farmers that the son was sent to, and they didn't receive him. Verse 46, Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they that is the crowds, regarded him, that is Yeshua, as a prophet. Remember, blood of the prophets, Yeshua the prophet. Matthew 22, 1-7. through Once more Yeshua spoke to them, the chief priests and the Pharisee elders, in parables. He says this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out his slaves to summon those invited to the banquet but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other slaves and said, Tell those who are invited, Look, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat and cattle have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the others seized the slaves, treated them outrageously, and killed them. The king was enraged, so he sent out his troops destroyed those murderers, and burned down their city. Here again we see another parable come to light when we view it not just as a general parable, but when we view it in light of its first century context and what it meant for that generation. The king is Yahweh, just like the landowner in the parable of the vineyard. And he announces a wedding banquet for his son, that's Yeshua. And he sends out his slaves or servants. Who are, who, are his, who are his slaves or his servants? That's his prophets, just like in the parable of the vineyard. And he goes and invites people to the banquet. Who are the people? The chief priest and the Pharisee elders. The same ones as the tenant farmers in the parable right before it. But they don't want to come to the wedding banquet. And some of them even seize the servants, that is the prophets, and they... Do what? They kill the servants. They treat them outrageously and they kill the servants. 
So what does the king, what does Yahweh do? Yahweh sends out his troops, destroys those murderers, and burns down their city. I believe that latter part right there in verse 7 took place in A.D. 70 when the Roman armies were used as a rod of judgment against apostate Judah and the city that had now become a den of thieves, the city of Jerusalem. Now let's think about this, all of what we've covered so far in relation to Peter's second salvation message. I've counted in the book of Acts, and I could be wrong in my count, but I've counted five salvation sermons at least recorded that Peter preached in the book of Acts. And the second one is in Acts chapter 3. I've talked about some of this before, but we can go through it kind of quickly and comment on some things as I read. But just follow along. What we've covered, follow along in Acts 3 as Peter's preaching this salvation sermon. Beginning at verse 12. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, men of Israel. Now, it should go without saying, but when Peter says men of Israel, who is Peter addressing his sermon to? He's addressing it to the men of Israel. That's the only people that he's addressing his sermon to right here in Acts chapter 3. He's preaching specifically and only to the men of Israel here. Follow the pronouns. Why are you, Peter speaking to them, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made him walk? What Peter's referring to is the healing that took place in Acts 3, 1 through 11 of the lame man that sat at the temple where Peter said, silver and gold have I none, Brother Jerry, right? But he gave him a healing. And Peter did what Brother Arnold said we should all do. He gave Yahweh the glory. In other words, I didn't by my own power make this man to walk. My glory comes from a higher power. Verse 13. The mighty one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the mighty one of our fathers, has glorified his servant Yeshua, whom you, still the same pronouns, whom you, men of Israel, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now here is the filling up the measure of their father's sins. This is what Peter's saying right here in Acts 3 verse 13. The men of Israel that he's preaching to denied Yeshua in the presence of Pilate, handed him over for the, for the crucifixion. When he had decided to release him, who had decided to release Yeshua? Pilate. Pilate wanted to release Yeshua. Verse 14, But you, still the same you, the men of Israel, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One. They did not receive the son of the landowner that was sent to them. They didn't want to come to the wedding banquet that the king prepared for his son and asked to have a murderer given to you. That's when they cried out, as we commonly call him, Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. They requested that murderer to be released at the Passover instead of Yeshua because it was the custom for the Romans to release a murderer at the Feast of the Passover, or, excuse me, to release a prisoner at the Feast of the Passover. And this text shows that Barabbas there was a murderer. Verse 15, And you, still the same pronouns, the men of Israel, you killed the prince of life. Daniel 9.25 From the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince. The prince. Acts 3.15 And you killed the prince of life. 
the son of the king, the son of the landowner, whom the mighty one raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect help in front of all of you. That refers back to the miracle of the lame man. He was lame. I believe if you read on in the book of Acts, he had been lame, I want to say, 38 to 40, somewhere around in their years. You can read the book of Acts. It's something like that. He'd been lame for a long time. But now he went walking and leaping <laughs> in the temple. I mean, that would just be amazing to experience. Verse 17. Peter continues preaching his salvation sermon. And now, brothers, brothers. Who's he talking to? The men of Israel. He wouldn't call anybody else brothers. Now, they weren't brothers because they believed in Yeshua. That's why he's preaching to them. They don't believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. They were physical brothers. They were physical kinsmen. And that's why he calls them brothers. And he says, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance. Did what in ignorance? Killed the prince of life. You did it in ignorance. You didn't recognize the time of your visitation. But guess what? There's an opportunity for you to repent of your sin and receive Yeshua, the promised Messiah, that was sent for you. There's an opportunity here. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. There's an opportunity here. The option is given. Believe and be delivered and be forgiven and be healed. Do not believe. Do not repent and die in your sins and receive eternal damnation. The opposite of eternal life. That's the options that's given there. Peter's preaching. He's preaching a salvation sermon. And now, brothers, kinsmen, I know you did it in ignorance just as your leaders did. Verse 18, but what the Mighty One predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that His Messiah would suffer, He has fulfilled in this way. See, Yahweh had already predicted all of this to happen. It was already in prophecy that Yeshua would come. Yahweh's Messiah. He would come and He would suffer. And so it had to be fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled. Peter's telling them, look, Yahweh predicted it. Verse 19, therefore repent and turn back. Repent means change your ways. Do an about face. Quit rejecting Yeshua as the Messiah and receive Him as the Messiah. That's what Peter's preaching to the men of Israel there. Then he says that your sins may be what? Wiped out. See, if they would repent, their sins will be wiped out. So that the seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of says the Lord, that it's a reference to Yahweh the Father, verse 20, and He, the Lord of verse 19, may send Yeshua, who has been appointed Messiah for you. Who was Yeshua appointed Messiah for? The Israelites. The men of Israel. That's who had, He had been appointed the Messiah for. Verse 21, Heaven must welcome Him until the times of the restoration of all things, which the Mighty One spoke about by the mouth of His holy prophets from the beginning. That's actually still going on. Heaven is still welcoming Him right now until the restoration of all things. Verse 22. Moses said, now Peter's, Peter's going back to Moses, Yahweh your Mighty One will raise up for you a prophet. 
Here we see that Yeshua is a prophet like Moses. Thus, His blood was the last blood to be poured into the cup, fill up the measure of your father's sins. Moses said, Yahweh your mighty one will raise up for you a prophet like me, so the, the, the Messiah is going to be like Moses, from among the brothers. From among the brothers. In other words, from among the brother Israelites, the kinsmen of Israel. We know Yeshua was an Israelite from the tribe of Judah, right? Amen. Hebrews 7.14 says it's just obvious. It's evident that he was from the tribe of Judah. Moses didn't speak nothing about that tribe concerning the priesthood. And that's because he's not a priest after Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's Hebrews chapter 7. Another time, another message. Verse 22 at the end. You must listen to him and everything he will say to you. When Yahweh sent prophet Moses to the Israelites, the Israelites had to listen to what Moses told them. You know, we sing that song, Brother Jerry, it's one of his favorite songs, Psalm 124, If Yahweh had not been on our side, let Israel say. You know that David is writing about the crossing of the Red Sea in that psalm. You may have caught that from singing the psalm. That's what David means when he says, if Yahweh had not been on our side, then we would have been taken alive, the waters all around our people. The torrent would have swept over us, the raging waters would have swept over us. What David is saying was, if Yahweh had not been on the side of the Israelites, they would have been drowned in the Red Sea. But Yahweh was on their side. And so he let them pass through, the the men, the women, the little babies, no matter how young they were, they passed through there on dry ground. Apostle Paul calls it a baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He does. He says they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so they all passed through no matter how old or how young. They all were saved right there by Yahweh. But who, who did the waters sweep over? The Egyptians. So Peter is going back to Moses. Yahweh's going to raise up a prophet like me from among the brothers. A brother Israelite. And you've got to listen to him. Just like the Israelites had to listen to Moses, you've got to listen to this prophet that, he, that he's going to raise up. Verse 23 says, And it will be that everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Now, those who don't listen to prophet Yeshua will be cut off from the people. Now, in order to be cut off from the people, you have to be attached somehow. Catch that. To be cut off from the people, you have to somehow be attached. This is speaking of Israelites who are physically attached to the nation, their physical kinsmen, their brothers, Acts 3.17. But if they don't listen to prophet Yeshua, the prophet like Moses that Yahweh raised up from among the brothers in Israel, if they don't listen to him, they'll be what? Chopped off, cut off from the people. What did John the Baptist say? The axe is now laid at the root of the tree. John was talking about something that was happening in his time. In his time. I know we can apply that even now in our lives. But John was saying, look, the axe is at the root of the tree right now in my ministry. And it's ready to strike. You've got to listen, not to me, but to the one coming after me. And John was humble. He said, I'm not even worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. Talking about the Messiah. And if John the Baptist, who's more righteous than all of us, if he could say that about the Messiah, then how humble should we be? I'm not even worthy to look upon Yeshua the Messiah. But praise Yahweh by His grace. He allows me to... He's my elder brother. He's my kinsman redeemer. Praise Yahweh. Acts 3.24. Peter's still preaching. 
He's kind of long-winded like Brother Matthew. Verse 24, In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days. Verse 25, You, still the same men of Israel, back in verse 12, You are the sons of the prophets. See, the, the men that Peter's preaching to are the descendants of Israel of old. And of the covenant that the Mighty One made with your forefathers. So they're not only sons of the prophets, but they're sons of the covenant. Saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Mighty One raised up His servant Yeshua, speaking of Yeshua, and sent Him first to you. Remember, He came to the Judahites first, and then also to the nations. So He sent Yeshua first to Judah, to you, Peter's saying. He's preaching to Judahite men of Israel to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. This whole message is what the angel Gabriel was referring to in Daniel 9.24 when he said that the time frame of the 70 weeks or 490 years would accomplish a finishing of the transgression. 70 weeks are decreed about your people, Daniel, Israel, and your city, Daniel, Jerusalem, The first thing is to finish the transgression. All of the transgressions of the nation of Israel that Daniel and Daniel 9 had been repenting of in his prayer, in rejecting the prophets sent to them and killing those prophets, that would all come to a finish or a fullness with the rejection of the greatest prophet to ever walk the face of the earth, nobody like him before or will be after. And that is Yeshua the Prince, the Messiah, the Prince, the Son of Yahweh, the King. Now, as I close, I think that this sheds light on what John nineteen twenty eight through 30 actually means. A lot of people have asked me, Brother Matthew, what do you think this means? This is what I think it means now. I used to not understand this. But through my studies, this is what I believe. John nineteen twenty eight through 30. After this, when Yeshua knew that everything was now accomplished that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He said, I'm thirsty. He's hanging on the torture stake. And this text says that he knew, even while hanging there, he knew that everything that the Scripture had prophesied about what was taking place had been accomplished and been fulfilled. So he says, I'm thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Yeshua received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. His spirit went back to Father Yahweh that gave it to him. Gabriel said to finish the transgression would take place in that 490 year period, and that there would be 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the Messiah, the Prince. During that time frame, Yeshua was crucified. And as we just read, Yeshua knew that everything was now accomplished, that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. So Yeshua said, it is finished. What is finished? The transgression or the sin cup had been filled up with His rejection and His death. Many people have asked me over the years what I believe that Yeshua means when He says it is finished. I remember one time Brother Danny called me up and said, what do you mean, or what what do you think Yeshua meant when He said it is finished? You know, because a lot of people, they think that He meant the law is done away with now. (laughs) 
you know, and you know, you could throw random stuff like that out there, but what what really did he mean? Well, I'm not saying I have 100% accuracy here, but through my Bible study, I believe that when Yeshua said this, he was echoing the angel Gabriel. When Gabriel said the 70 weeks are determined, the first thing is to finish the transgression. When Yeshua said it's finished, he means this. I'm the culmination of all of the prophets that have been rejected and and murdered up to me. I'm the culmination of that. The, The measure of the cup has been filled up. It is finished. The next time I teach, I'm going to try to cover Daniel 9.24's next two things, which is to make an end of sin. Seventy weeks are decreed to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity. That's how the King James Version translates that. In the HCSB, they're termed as to put a stop to sin and to wipe away injustice. I believe that we'll continue to see how these things were all fulfilled at the first coming of Messiah the Prince. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you, I appreciate you, and I thank you. Um, Yahweh Father, sometimes sometimes things in your word seem hard to understand. I don't believe they're impossible to understand, but they are sometimes hard to understand. But I pray that you would take the scales off of our eyes and our ears so that we might see the truth and we might hear the truth. Father Yahweh, um, it has astounded me and it has made me love you and your word more from studying Matthew 24 and Daniel 9. And I ask that you would continue to lead and guide me in my studies and lead and guide all of us in our studies. And uh, I'm thankful for a good understanding. And uh, I just pray that you'd continue that. And uh, let us interpret the Bible properly. Help us to do that, Yahweh. We can't do it on our own. Help us to do that. I love you and I thank you. It's through your son, Yeshua, I pray. Amen.